Number two, mercy and our gospel witness. And number three, faithful stewardship being channels of God's mercy. So let's delve into the first point, the biblical understanding of mercy. If you look at verses 31 and 32, Jesus begins this passage by saying this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So the question is this, why is Jesus making this specific distinction between the sheep and the goats? And, and what do these um, represent? You know, here Jesus is making a point that if you are a Christian, you know, mercy is not an option. If, you're, if you consider yourself to be a faithful a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, then mercy, ex- participating in acts of mercy and justice is not an option. This is not something that you treat as an elective, that you, you take on and then you realize it's too difficult, so I'm not going to do it. We don't have that say. This is not something that, that we could actually say, this is not for me. If you're a Christian, you know, we ought to participate in acts of mercy and justice. The sheep actually represent people who actively participated and engaged in the works of justice and mercy. And on the other hand, the goats who are on the left represent people who did not do otherwise. And if you're walking with God on a day-to-day basis, and if you have been being transformed by the gospel, and if you see yourself growing in grace, and if especially your heart has been captured and captivated by the beauty of what God in Christ has done for you on the cross, and if you see the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit um, doing the work of transformation in your life through the Spirit, and, and then you're going to be able to actually say that it is impossible simply not to participate in this important work of justice and mercy. And as we see in the following verses from 33 and onward, um, we're going to be able to see, you know, spiritual implications of all the things that Christ has already done for us on the cross. You know, I was hungry and, and, and you fed me. You know, it's not, just, it's not just that we were hungry and thirsty, but, you know, if you go back to the gospel and really see what God in Christ has done for us, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But God in Christ had mercy upon us and made us alive in his son Jesus Christ. And even now, as we continue, to continue this journey of faith, and as we, even as we go through the ups and downs of Christian life, and, and we will find ourselves being you know, spiritually dry and spiritually hungry and thirsty, but he continues to be that bread of life and then the, bread, and the living water for us. The stranger aspect, you know, we have been welcomed into his kingdom, right? We don't deserve it. None of us can earn our way into his presence, when, when we were objects of God's wrath, he had mercy upon us. And through the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are, not, we are now not objects of his wrath, but rather we are his beloved sons and daughters. We were once spiritually naked, but in Christ we have been clothed with the robe of uh, Jesus' perfect righteousness. We have been covered with the garments of grace. In terms of sickness, we've been, like I said again, we have been made alive. Right? And we will continue uh, to have our ups and downs, but we will have a Savior who will continue to remain uh, faithful to us. In terms of prison and visiting, um, we, have been, we have been once again, um, set, uh, set us, God has set us free uh, from the bondage of sin and death and once and for all. And this, is, this does not change. And this is an objective truth if you are in 
Christ Jesus. Now, but then this is the thing. Works of justice and mercy, this is not something that comes to us naturally. Why? Why is that? Because participating and engaging in works of justice and mercy is demanding physically, emotionally, mentally. And it is costly and it is inconvenient because you have to drop everything and oftentimes you have to even adjust your schedule in order to meet the needs of someone that you deeply care about or even someone that God sends your way. So it is inconvenient. It is costly. So it's not natural for us to say when when God sends someone our way that we can minister to or if there's a need that we can immediately meet. But our, our initial reaction is to actually not do it right away. Because that's just how we operate, right? But the more and more you um, see yourself going deeper and deeper into the gospel, and, you, and, and this is why unless your life is firmly and deeply rooted in the gospel, and then unless you really understand what God in Christ has done for you, the depth of his love, the depth of his mercy, unless you see that, you're going to continue to struggle with this. And you're going to continue to respond in a manner that is not pleasing before the Lord, right? Because this is who we are by nature. You know, Tim Keller once, once said that you have a circumcised heart when what you ought to do and what you want to do are the same. You know, let's be honest, and, and I'll be honest with you, and, and oftentimes what I want to do is not participate in works of justice and mercy because I'm a sinner by nature too. But we are clearly commanded by a God and, and the gospel to, to actively engage and participate. And that's what we ought to do as Christians, right? To continue to be ambassadors and, and agents of God's justice and mercy. And that's what we are called to do. But then oftentimes what we want to do and what we ought to do contradict one another. And oftentimes it, it is usually what we want to do wins rather than what we ought to do as Christians. But I do believe that as we continue to surrender ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and as the Spirit of God continues to, to work in our hearts to transform us from the inside out, I do believe that it is possible for us to eventually get to this place by the grace of God where what we ought to do and what we want to do become the same thing. And when you get to that place, I mean, it will be, be an exciting place because um, doing works of justice and mercy would no longer feel like a duty or an obligation where you're just doing this because you have to or because your, your pastor asked you to do it because it's a, it's a Christian thing to do. You're not going to respond in that manner, but rather you're going to respond with joy. As you think about what God in Christ has done for you, the love that he has shown for you, the mercy that he has already shown you, and out of that you're going to let the love, love of God compel you to respond in a way so that through that work of justice and mercy, as you think about how you're going to meet that person's need and, and, and in, in doing so, point that person to Christ so that that person can one day, through your service and, and through the in, divine intervention of the Holy Spirit, as they become a child of God, there'll be nothing like that that will bring more joy to your heart. And I do believe that it is possible through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, if, as broken as we may be, that, that what we ought to do and what we want to do can actually become the same thing. It's not because that we can do it, but through the Spirit, this is actually possible. You know, because we live in a broken world that is tainted by sin, and, you know, we will always have broken people living broken lives among us. 
then my question to you is, when you see the poor, when you see the needy, the people who have been rejected, marginalized, and labeled as worthless by the society that we are living in, now how do you feel? Are are you moved to compassion? You want to immediately drop everything and and go all in and and try to alleviate, alleviate their problems or meet their needs. Oftentimes, we, we tend to just take a step back and say, maybe somebody else will do it. Maybe, past, maybe the pastors will do it. Maybe the, maybe the leaders will do it. Because we tend to have this approach when it comes to works of justice and mercy that it's reserved for someone who is more committed and devout in their faith. It's like, I'm just, a, I'm just you know, I like where, where I am spiritually, and we just want to continue to do our Christian life comfortably. And we don't like it when... Um, when more is demanded of us so that, so that our, lives, our spiritual life becomes a little bit more uncomfortable because we have to give more, sacrifice more. That's why we tend to treat works of justice and mercy as something that is just for the, the, the strong in faith, for the leaders, for the pastors. But as Tim Keller reminds us, in a true, authentic, genuine faith will inevitably show itself through deeds of mercy. And if you are becoming more and more like your heavenly Father, who is the God of love, justice, and mercy, then then it is simply impossible for you to neglect this important work of ministry. As I've been saying, works of justice and mercy are not extracurricular activities, something that we can just pick up, and then when we realize this is too difficult, you drop, we we don't have that say. And we ought to actively participate and engage in works of justice and mercy. And, and we have been called by God to be his ambassadors and agents of this important work of justice and mercy. You know, in his book, Ministries of Mercy, Tim Keller um, helps us to understand how sin has um, impacted the way we uh, view God ourselves and how we relate to one another, even how it has impacted the world that we are living in. So he mentions these four different alienations, um, theological, psychological, uh, social, and, and physical. And let me just explain that a little bit because this will help you better understand what, um, how we can um, better approach this important work of justice and mercy. So theological uh, alienation. So when Adam and Eve sinned, um, what happened? Do you know what happened? Do you know, do you know what, what they end up doing? I'm so sorry that that's not clear. Um, it is clear? Can you see? Okay. Yeah. So when Adam and Eve sinned, one thing that they did immediately, which is mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, is that they hid themselves from the presence of God. Because before sin came into the world, they were fully, you know, basking in the glory of God and enjoying his presence. But when sin happened, it severed their intimate and personal fellowship with him. So what ended up doing is they ran. They began to hide from him, separation from God. But so, so sin not only separates man from God, but it also has other uh, devastating um, effects. So psychological alienation, what does that mean? So Adam and Eve, for the first time, they realized that they were naked. So as a result, they were hiding. But because they realized that they were naked for the first time and they began to experience guilt, shame, 
and fear. So they cover themselves. And this, this will, um, we're going to also, in a, we're going to also feel this effect as we continue to live this life as Christians. And one of, the, one, of the, the sin, one of the things that sin does to us is it actually deceives us into believing that we are someone we are not. So sin will continue to tempt us to believe something not, that is not true about us. So we're going to continue to have an identity crisis. And this is why unless your life is firmly and deeply rooted in the gospel, what God says about who you are in Christ, that you are a child of God, beloved child of God, and that there's absolutely nothing in this world, nothing that you can do to change that, because that is an objective truth that does not change. Because Christ bore our sins, past, present, and future, once and for all, and we are fully forgiven and perfectly loved. There's absolutely nothing you and I can do to make God love us, love us more or less. So that does not change. But what, sin does, but what sin does is it makes us believe something that is not true about us. So as we go through this identity crisis, you know, we're going to find ourselves turning to the things of this world. It could be, it could be anything, uh, a functional idol. It could be money. It could be power. It could be pleasure. It could be sex. Popularity, fame, possessions, you name it. We turn to these things hoping that they will fill the void in our own hearts and satisfy the inner longings of our hearts, but it doesn't work that way. And this is a vain pursuit, and it always ends in a dead end. And this is what sin does. Severs our relationship with God. It also um, deceives us into believing something that is not true about us. So it has a psychological aspect. But also that has a social implication. What is that? Now, because we're sinners by nature, that means we are self-centered, self-absorbed. We are always at the center, not God. So that leads to tensions, conflicts. We, it begins to affect the way we relate to the people around us. So it's, it's, it's hard for us to, to live together with other people in harmony and in peace. We have to actually try not to cause conflict. And our hearts are filled with hatred, anger, jealousy, gossip, division. I mean, you name it, right? So it has a social aspect. You know, sin has also affected the, the world that we're living in. So um, we, we have to cope with and, and suffer from natural disasters, famine, different forms of diseases, mental, physical disabilities, aging, and death. These are a part of the effects of sin. I mean, this is the world that we are living in. And this is the, the context that God is calling us into as we remember that we have been called to participate and engage in this important work of justice and mercy. But as you have seen in the diagram, I mean, I'm so sorry that's fake, but the, the outer layer was physical and then, it's the, and then it's the social and the psychological and the spiritual, theological. But if you look at it closely, you may notice that the needs become more visible to everyone as you go towards the outer circles. Like the physical needs, for example, it could be as simple as providing someone food, shelter, or clothing. And there are a lot of um, good secular organizations and humanitarian agencies. They do a very good job of meeting these um, needs, physical needs, on the outer, on the, on, that's on the, on the outer layer, right? But then the problem is, their service and impact may be, may be good on a, on, on a temporary basis, but it is still limited in a sense that they're unable to penetrate all the way to the poor and address the deepest need of the human heart. And only the gospel is able to do that. 
And this is why our gospel witness needs to be done both in word and deeds. I think Tim Keller is really helpful here um, when he writes to quote, the unbeliever is not necessarily moved by seeing Christians serving the theological and psychological needs of others. They cannot understand the action because they do not feel the need themselves. They don't, they don't see the need for their, their Savior because they're still dead in their sins and trespasses, right? But the unbelievers do feel physical needs. And when they see Christians feeding the hungry, comforting the suffering, supporting the financially and physically weak, unbelievers see our service. And through this, hearts can be softened to Christ. Both word and deed are equally commanded and necessary for the church because the word and deed exist as interdependent ministries, both as, as means to the end of spreading God's kingdom. Nevertheless, the ministry of the, the word is the more radical and basic of the two ministries in that it goes to the root or the fount from which all human brokenness flows. As you can see, as these uh, secular, uh, humanitarian, you know, non-Christian organizations and agencies, they may do a very good job of meeting the physical needs, which is on the outer layer. It's, it's, not, it's, it's hard for them to, it's almost impossible for them to uh, penetrate all the way into the core and address the deepest need of, of the human heart. Only the gospel can do that. But then the reason why there's so many and growing number of um, secular, humanitarian, non-Christian agencies doing the work of justice and mercy is because churches have neglected this important work. And this is an area, I think, that, that we can do better um, as a church. And this is an area I know that I need to do better um, as a child of God. As you can see, God often uses deeds of justice and mercy as a means to open hearts to the gospel. So that the next time an opportunity comes your way, especially when it comes to an unbelieving friend, if you are able to meet a need physically, I want to really encourage you to do that, especially if you can do it right away. Because that may create another opportunity for you to actually share the gospel. And it may actually soften their hearts to be more receptive uh, to the word. So no matter how big or small, um, I want to really encourage and challenge you to really take advantage and be intentional about um, participating in this important work of justice and mercy. You know, we have this tendency to, to reduce the gospel to something that is merely vocalized. That we have to share the gospel in, in words, right? And don't get me wrong, we ought to share the gospel whenever an opportunity arises because as Romans 10, 17 reminds us, as Apostle reminds us in that verse, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So we got to take advantage of every opportunity to, to share the gospel in word format, right? But at the same time, in order for us to effectively bear gospel witness to the people around us, especially non-believers, we must share the, the gospel in both word and deeds. And this is where works of justice and mercy actually come in. We're also called to embody the gospel. Our lives ought to be the gospel in action. J.C. Rye once said, a Christian is a walking sermon. If there's a disconnect between what you are saying, what you are preaching, and how you are living your life, then there's something seriously wrong with that picture, right? What you are saying, what you are preaching, ought to be seen in, in how you treat others, in how you serve others, how you embrace others, how you welcome 
others into your life. You know, one of the core values of our ministry is to be outwardly compassionate. This is right there, right? And the question that I want to raise, we as a ministry and also individually is this, you know, have we been outwardly compassionate to the people around us? This is the question as I was preparing this message that I asked myself, and I want to ask you the same question, you know, have... I want you to ask yourself, you know, have I been outwardly compassionate with the people that God has placed in my life? If you're working professionals, think about your working contacts, your coworkers. If you're a college student, think about your, your campus, your classroom, your classmates, your professors, your TAs. Whoever you come in contact with on a regular basis, you know, have I been outwardly compassionate with the people whom God has placed in my life? We need to think about them, be very honest, because these relationships, you may, you may think not much of them, but they may actually be gospel opportunities, ministry opportunities, to be Christ to them. As you, as you not just share the gospel, but perhaps as you, um, as you engage um, and enter into their life through the works of mercy and justice, meeting their physical needs, an opportunity may be open, they may... Not otherwise be there for you to share the gospel, right? So have I been outwardly compassionate as a child of God in the context that God has called me? We need to think about that and honestly evaluate. And also we as a church, how are we doing? We as a ministry, NCF, have we been outwardly compassionate in this community, in this neighborhood? You know, as a church, have we been faithful stewards of all the things that God has blessed us with? Have we been investing everything back into NCF? Or have we been, with wisdom and discernment, using some of those funds actually to to bless the people in this community for the glory of God and the furtherance of God's kingdom? You know, what if we were to hypothetically speaking, not that we're going to leave, what if we were to relocate and leave this community, East Elmhurst? Will our, will our neighbors even care? Would they even notice? Would they be devastated, the fact that we left? Or would they actually say, good riddance, they were just taking up space? How would they respond to our departure? Something to think about, Right? I think Keller is really helpful um, when he writes this quote. There are some needs only you can see. There are some hands only you can hold. There are some people only you can reach. This is why the place that God has called you today, your workplace, your school campus, you need to be very intentional about every interaction, every conversation. You know, asking God to really use you as you continue to share the gospel in both word and deeds, that you can be his agent and ambassador for his kingdom and glory. Because I I believe that as you approach each day, each conversation, each interaction with that kind of gospel intentionality, I do believe that it will radically change the way you live your life as a student or as a coworker. Because it matters. Right? It really matters. 
you know, Maya and Shine, they've been gone for almost two months now. And I thought I was going to be okay. I mean, this is the end of week six. And it's getting rough because I'm so used to having them with me, but they're gone. And so life feels empty. House is too clean, too quiet. I actually prefer to be messy and noisy and have them with me. And it's been difficult. Um, and when Shine was pregnant with, with Maya, I mean, at that time, um, we, were, we weren't sure what we were going to name her. But one of the names that we both really liked was the name Irene. Obviously, we didn't name her that. I'll tell you why. The, the name Irene in Greek means peace. You know, in Shine and I, we went through a lot of ups and downs, and we went through a long season of deep and intense pain and suffering. So we wanted, you know, we wanted our daughter to be a reminder of the peace that God alone can provide. So we wanted to name her Irene. Until my friend made it Facebook official that they're going to name their daughter Irene. <laughs> so I remember looking at that post, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, why? Of all names, you want to name your daughter Irene? So even to this day, when I think about when I come across the name Irene, it reminds me of that, and then it makes me, like, angry and annoyed. It's the exact opposite of the meaning of the name. So we ended up na- naming Amaya, and her middle name is actually Zoe. Maya in Hebrew means spring. Greek in, um, and Zoe in Greek means life. So her name means spring of life. And we wanted her to become um, a woman of God whom God will use uh, mightily to bring life to the people around her. And that, that's been our prayer since day one. And my, my close friend, one of my best friends, um, when Maya was born, he's like, oh, Maya Zoe, great name. Um, I love the meaning. L- spring of life will drain the life out of you first year, which was true. It was, first year was pretty rough, lack of sleep, all the late night meetings. But that's our prayer for her, that God will really use her so that she can live up to her name, to bring life to the people around her as she boldly lives out the gospel in both word and deed form. Now, is that something that that we have been doing as individuals and as a church? Are we bringing life to the people around us as we actively engage in works of justice and mercy, as we bear gospel witness in both word and deed? are Are we having that kind of impact to the people around us so that if we were to ever relocate, you know, they will be so sad and devastated because they don't want to let you go. Because you've you, you have had such a, a profound impact in their lives, in the, li- in the lives of the, the, your neighborhood, your neighbors, your workplace, because you have faithfully and courageously been living out your faith in both word and deed. You know, I pray that we can be that kind of Christians. We can be that kind of ministry. You know, we launched our first missional tribe, about a month ago, and it's called Free Her, as PJ mentioned during the announcements. It's a combination of two words, freedom and her. And the the four sisters and I, we got together because we're passionate about this um, issue of um, restoring women who have been sexually trafficked and really investing deeply into their lives um, so that they can um, they can resume, not just resume life, but, but that they can have their identities firmly grounded in the gospel and then actually do something more and profound for God's kingdom. So we, five of us got together and then we launched this and, and, and 
it's been it's been um, challenging, but at the same time, we're trying to stay focused uh, because we really want to make a difference in the lives of these women. As we even through even through bake sale, or as we con- and the, now the sisters after the orientation, they're going to actually go and minister to these women one on one or one on two, because um, they want to build intentional and meaningful relationships as they just share life together. But I also want to let you know that we have a second missional tribe that's about to be launched. And, we deci- and uh, uh, three, three families, you know, and I, we got together. And then they really had a burden for the region, this region, East Elmhurst. And they really, God has really been putting on their hearts to really uh, engage actively in works of justice and mercy and meeting the needs of the people right here in our community. And then we decided to name our second missional tribe Beacon because they wanted to to be that beacon of hope. They wanted to be able to shine the light of the gospel into pockets of darkness in this neighborhood. And the mission statement statement is to bless East Elmers through acts of compassion. And this is on the works. And I really want to encourage and challenge you if this is, you feel a heart for this neighborhood and this community that you you, you come on board. And as we are just about to get started with uh, King's Inn. Two weeks ago, I visited King's Inn because I've heard before I got here that we used to do ministry with them, that, um, that, that we used to uh, do like clothing drives and we used to uh, try to build a meaningful relationship with them. So I just walked over and two weeks ago I met with one of the directors. And she was actually thrilled that I showed up. And when we were talking in her office and she told me, you know, you know Pastor, I'm, I'm so surprised that you walked over because... Um, We've been actually contacting you, you guys. We've been calling you guys to see if you would be willing to continue the ministry that you, you guys stopped um, in the past. Kind of gave me chills because um, um, this is something that God has been really putting in our hearts and the th- three families that, 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 that has formed this missional tribe. But as, you, as we were talking more and more, we were so um, excited um, and the, the three families, and I were so excited the fact that God is opening doors. And, and I've been corresponding with, with the director um, through emails, and they have tons of needs. And I am confident that we can actually meet a lot of those needs, physical needs, right? Diapers, um, clothing, detergent, you name it. Simple things that we take for granted. But I do believe that as we provide and meet and address these physical needs, I do believe that... Um, that really meaningful relationships can be formed and established and maintained, and that through that meaningful relationship that we could actually share the word of Christ as we, build, um, as we go about it very intentionally, right? So that's on the works, and it is really exciting. And missional tribes, as PJ mentioned, this is going to be our out, outwardly compassionate, you know, focused ministry. And, and we're not just limiting ourselves to Restore NYC and to King's Inn, and eventually, we want to also, um, you know, walk over to LaGuardia Family Center, which is on the other side of East Elmers. But if you have a heart for a specific group in this neighborhood or in this city, and if you would like to start a missional tribe, please, please let me know. And I will do whatever is in my power to help you to launch that. Because I do believe that it is imperative that we live intentionally in this way. And this is how we can be faithful stewards of all the resources that God has blessed us as a ministry and also as families and as, also as individuals. 
As James reminds us in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, the faith without good works is dead. I'll read from verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If you're a Christian, if you have already professed your faith in Christ, if you're walking with him on a day-to-day basis, that you're going deeper and deeper into the gospel, and that you see beauty in that, because it shows you what kind of sinner you know, you, we are, how wretched and undeserving we are, but yet, God still shows mercy, demonstrates love for us. That while we're still sinners, he died for us on the cross, right? So none of us deserve his mercy. None of us deserve his love and grace. And you may, when you look at the people in this community, you may may feel like or you may just automatically just assume, you know, they're not worth my time. They're not worthy of my resources, my hard-earned money. You know, if if that is... um, where you stand, then I, also, I still want to challenge you to think otherwise. As you think about the gospel, as you think about what God in Christ has done for you when we were so undeserving and unworthy. And if we really get that, and if we really see what God in Christ has done for us on the cross, you know, how can we not respond in a manner that shows that we really understand the depth of God's love and mercy for us? And one of the ways, this is why, one of the ways that we can see whether we really have that real, authentic, genuine faith is whether, you know, are we engaging actively in works of justice and mercy? Do we care for the poor? Do we care for those who have been marginalized? Do we advocate for for the people who do not have a voice? Do we stand up for them and on their behalf and go to work for them, right? These are crucial, and these are, I do believe, they're absolutely necessary. As Tim Keller reminds us, as I close, while there may be rich Christians, there should not be rich living Christians. I'll say that again. While there may be rich Christians, there should not be rich living Christians. It's not sin to be wealthy. It's not sin to be rich. Then the question is, what are you going to do with the wealth that God has blessed you with? What are you doing with resources that God has given you and blessed you with, especially if you're living in abundance. You know, our tendency in our sinful nature is to acquire more and more and more so that our lives can become even more comfortable, so that we could enjoy more pleasure, so that we could have more fun in this world. I mean, that's our tendency. That's my heart too. But God is calling us to be faithful stewards, to be channels of his grace, love, and mercy to the people around us. And this is something that we need to fight because we want to be rich living. But I want to encourage and challenge you to be, rich, rich, to be rich toward God. If God blesses you with wealth, I pray that, that you can use that wisely to have the maximum impact for God's kingdom and for the people whom God has placed in your life so that you can 
make a difference in their lives, spiritually, not just physically, spiritually. Lead them to Christ. And I pray that, that that will be your joy, that you would find the ultimate pleasure in that. But how do we do that? Like I said, we need, to, we, need this, we need God to help us so that what we want to do and what we ought to do become the same thing, right? Because like when we get to that place, oh, man, it's going to be so exciting. Because like all you want to do is just go all in, surrender everything. I mean, it was already God to, God to begin with, right? All that we are, all that we have, surrender all and asking God to use you, do mighty, to mighty, and to work powerfully in and through you. It's going to be amazing. And there's going to be nothing more, um, nothing, nothing's more going to bring you joy than that. And I promise you, right? And this is why in today's passage in verse 40, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. But in verse 45, he also says, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. You know, one of our core values to be outwardly compassionate. You know, let's pray that we can become that, that we can put that into practice on a consistent basis as a ministry and also as individuals in our workplaces, in our campuses to make a different, lasting different, to invest deeply into things that have eternal significance. And these are people, right? Let's ask God to do that more and more and also open many more opportunities for us so that we can continue to bear faithful gospel witness in both word and deed. Let's pray. Father, this is our prayer. Now, would you help us as a ministry and as individuals in the places that you have called us? That God, help us to be outwardly compassionate as we seek to, to bear gospel witness intentionally in both word and deed. That God, that we will be intentional. We will be gospel intentional about every conversation, every interaction, every relationship that we have. And would you open the eyes of our hearts and would you help us so that our hearts will break for what breaks yours. So that as we continue to build meaningful relationships with the people around us and as we take the initiative in reaching out to the people around us, even in this community, Lord, that Father, would you open doors for us, grant us more opportunities to be able to share the gospel in word and deed so that we can make a lasting impact for your kingdom. Um, in our schools, in our workplaces, and in this community, the Lord, East Elmers. And Father, also forgive us for if we have been resisting and rebelling, not remaining faithful in this important endeavor, this important work of justice and mercy, because it is inconvenient, it is costly, it demands too much at times. But I pray, Lord God, that even in those moments of rebellion, would you take us back to the cross and remind us of the depth of your love for us, the mercy that you have shown us, and let that compel us to go and live missionally um, as we meet the needs of the people around us and point them to you, Lord. Father, would you help us to, to live in this manner and may these things become true more and more in our lives. We commit ourselves to you. Thank you, Jesus, and we pray. Amen.